0: Hello and welcome. This is the Unorthodoxy Podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn and here we are at part 11 on the book of Exodus, which also happens to be our last episode in the series. I am very aware that I've left a lot of stuff out, uh, but I hope that I've offered at least something of an outline of some crucial main ideas. In the previous episode, I started looking at the issue of law, more at an abstract level than at the specific Uh, level of of what kinds of laws are are elucidated in Exodus and i have looked at what it means that we end up with laws and why we need them and so on. Well, in this episode, I want to conclude with looking at the so-called 10 words, the Decalogue. There is a trend in a lot of popular theology to regard the Decalogue in, in the somewhat negative light or at least are somewhat irrelevant to our contemporary ways of living. But I think there is a way of looking at the Decalogue that allows them to kind of shine forth as a form of sanity without necessarily becoming overly rigid. And I really hope that I'm able to to do justice to that kind of perspective here. As I said in the previous episode, one of the fundamental functions of the big laws is to train desire. And to get a feel for how this works, it actually helps to start at Exodus 20, verse 17, which is the last commandment. That one says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, which is hilarious, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Uh, This is often taken by the rabbis as a kind of reward uh, for following the other nine commandments. Um, it's the idea that when you keep the other commandments, you won't actually want what your neighbor has. Another way of looking at it is to see this as the point of departure. If you want to begin to understand how to live the commandments, start by looking at who you envy and start by refusing to let that envy take hold of you. It's helpful to remember that envy is, is very much part of the uh, the fall, where Eve envies God's power and, and therefore takes the, the fruit uh, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This idea of not let, letting envy take hold of you means actively taking a stand against what Gerard calls acquisitive mimesis, which is the imitation of the desire for things that will lead to conflict. After all, conflict originates in sharing a desire And so, transcending that conflict means sharing in what is infinitely shareable, like love and a desire for harmony, rather than something that is limited, uh, something like limited resources like time and money and your neighbor's donkey. If you want what your neighbor has, you are already making false gods, working within the realm of deceit, and basically setting up preconditions for murder and so on. What we should imitate is not our neighbor's desire for his or her possessions or identity or political, political affiliation, but our neighbor's desire to imitate the good. And that is, of course, if that desire to do good is in our neighbor at all. When we imitate the desire of our neighbor for good, uh, and hopefully the desire of the transcendent God for good, or um, well, to make goodness known in the world, we end up being far more capable of loving our neighbor as ourselves. This echoes Jesus' commandment to place the love of God and the neighbor above all other laws, or rather as kind of the the key hermeneutical uh, tool by which we understand all other laws. The point is to affirm created being, which is ultimately the affirmation of the transcendent goodness that all good things participate in. To covet your neighbor's things is to enter into a kind of contract against both yourself and the world. And of course, to desire your neighbor's goods is to secretly want to be who your neighbor is. To desire this is really to act against the goodness of your own being. It is, in a way, to love your neighbor's stuff against yourself and ultimately also against what works towards the world's wholeness. The positive form of this last commandment is put in 3 John 1 verse 11, as follows, Imitate not what is evil, but what is good. Another idea that helps us to read the commandments rightly is the idea of proportion. Everything has its place, and therefore its right proportion in the world. Evil, you could define evil in this way, is what sets disproportion up as the norm. To understand this, we can move back to the first commandment, which simply tells us to notice the inherent hierarchies in being. Created beings, like idols, are hierarchically subordinate, we hope, to the transcendent ground of being that is God. Distorting that hierarchy is the first step to placing everything at odds with each other. Here's an image for you. Some of you will know something called the cortical homunculus, which is fun to say. Um, It's a distorted representation of the human body that has been created by paying particular attention to the motor functions, sensory functions, and other parts of the body in terms of processing power. So it's got kind of a, a neurological angle on the body, but kind of represented as a physical thing. This is only one way of looking at the body, but when the human being is drawn or sculpted according to this mode of seeing, you will find a very strange-looking human being. Gigantic hands and lips and eyes and genitalia, for instance. This strange representation makes for an apt metaphor, because at one level of analysis, the cortical homunculus is true. It says something true about how we work, but it is, at a more fundamental level, false, at least in terms of the existential level of it, it's not how the body actually looks and moves in the world. If the human body were to look like the cortical homunculus, we would be dragging impossibly heavy hands around using an impossibly feeble frame. By overemphasizing one aspect of the true, which is one way to understand idolatry and what idolatry is, we would actually be placing other aspects of the truth in jeopardy. Then we get to commandment number two, which is pretty strange at first. It prohibits making graven images. This almost sounds like the first commandment, but with a slight shift in emphasis. In metaphysical language, this is the commandment not to render the transcendent in purely imminent terms, or to reduce absolute being to being itself. In simpler language, it's the idea that we should not try to take what is mysterious and reduce that mystery to something too obvious or too simple. Uh, We touched on this issue in the previous episode. Some extremists want to take this commandment very literally and therefore end up with a strange desire to refuse to create any kind of representational art. But this oddly actually misses the point of the commandment, as most literalist readings of, of things tend to. It actually just distorts what the text is getting at. The point is that we should create an openness within the world and in ourselves for that which transcends the world and ourselves. And this may paradoxically mean that it's a good idea to create images. To quote Neil Gaiman, it's brilliant to make good art, but to quote the Decalogue, just don't make graven images. The second commandment also points to the idea that human beings are generally quite good at confusing their categories. And as a result, we are quite capable of confusing human categories with divine realities or reality itself. We then represent the world wrongly without taking carefully into account all that has been left out or neglected in our representations. We all do this. But the key is to keep a posture of openness so that we don't become rigidly bound to our representations. We should always try to keep in mind that the map is not the territory. The map is helpful um, as a representation, but it is not reality. As this implies, it is good to pay attention to how we have mapped the world and to make adjustments where necessary to ensure that we conform to what is real rather than to what is illusory. Linked to Commandment 2 is the pronouncement that God is a, and I quote, Jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, that is God, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. This is a really tough pill to swallow when taken merely on the surface, but to get a sense of what it means, it may help to substitute the word or the phrase true reality for God. The idea here is that God is not rivalrous or competitive, or to put the idea more strongly, God as true reality is not to be treated as a rival or as competition. God ought not to be confused with the gods. And if you want more on that sort of idea, you should really have a read of David Bentley Hart's book, The Experience of God, which is an astonishing book. I'm reading it now for the third time, and it's still blowing my mind. The idea there is, and in this commandment, is that the uncreated shouldn't be confused with the created. And there are sadly a lot of theologies that tend to confuse these two quite quickly. The idea here is that you can fight with true reality all you like, but true reality will always win, and you will get severely injured in the process. The mercy referred to in this commandment might be taken as being akin to the flow or sense of harmony you would experience when you work with true reality rather than against it. I think we have some trouble with this commandment when we anthropomorphize it. It's really highlighting the question of how we decide to relate to God in the world. If you hate God, that is, if you work against reality, there are going to be consequences, whether obvious or not. This may be illustrated by something as concrete as not following the rules of the road. This is quite a nice metaphor. It's obviously risky in any case just to be out there driving, but the risk is seriously diminished when you stick to the speed limit and pay attention to traffic lights and the like. We then move to commandment 3, which concerns not taking the name of God in vain. In the modern world, we tend to regard names as being a bit like bumper stickers. So the usual reading of this commandment is that it's about speaking some kind of blasphemy and, you know, saying we shouldn't do that. So blasphemy in ordinary language would be something like saying Jesus Christ or God damn it when you stub your toe. In the pre-modern world, though, the name was regarded as the equivalent of what was being named. So taking the name in vain would just be the equivalent of denying through speech and action the reality of what is being named. It's a reminder to use speech and action as a way of participating in reality rather than as a, a kind of ways to, to um, control reality like a magic spell. This is an obvious extension of the first two commandments, and when they, you read them together, you get something like the following. One insist on the given order of reality, two, act in accordance with that reality, and three, do not speak out of keeping with reality, or do not speak as if your words can control or direct what is ultimately real. In a way, the first three commandments are somewhat identical, albeit from slightly different angles. I think they're all basically pointing out that we should pay attention to the nature of the divine. The fourth commandment is actually the natural extension then of the first three commandments. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The context of Exodus is very helpful for actually figuring out what this means. In Egypt, which is the land of slavery, everyone labored nonstop. Slavery amounted to no days off, no vacations, no rest. And what that signified was a total allegiance with the mechanics of the state. You can imagine, as I'm sure some of you know too well, working solidly without ever taking a break, such that when you get back to your dwelling place, you simply collapse on your bed at night without giving any thought to anything else. In such a world, there can really be no space for the first three commandments. You can't insist on putting God first then because there will be no time for this. You can't act and speak in keeping with the divine reality because, again, there will be no time. Your reality becomes nothing but an imminent frame, with all things that transcend your being removed from your attention. So the fourth commandment is a reminder to create space within your life for God. After all, as I've said previously, holiness is essentially space allowed for absolute being. The commandment regarding the Sabbath contains within it the idea of rendering time sacred, We are fairly adept, as the commandment regarding graven images alludes, at making things sacred. But to be is to be in time. In some sense, as Heidegger noted, being is time. I point out that the Sabbath is not one day a week, but a kind of double day. It is both the first and the last day of the week. So the idea here is to create something like a Sabbath sandwich which is a temporal frame that frames your whole week and your whole life through this lens of holiness. If you are in the unfortunate position of not being able to have a proper Sabbath, it helps to interrupt your day every day, I would say, with a Sabbath of sorts, a kind of moment of stopping. Interrupt your day with a moment during which you can acknowledge that which is infinite and ultimate and which is the proper context for all things finite and relative. Whereas the first four commandments can be broadly understood as being subcategories of the love-God commandment, the following six might be understood as being subcategories within the love-your-neighbor-as-yourself commandment, and obviously these play together. You can't do one without the other, as I've said before. Commandment five actually parallels commandment one. Both deal with the hierarchies of being. Commandment 5 says, Honor thy father and thy mother. And I know just even hearing those words for some people is like a, causes some tension to rise. Yes, this is about respecting parents, but I think it is also about more than that. It's a commandment that reminds us to pay attention to tradition. It's easy enough to tear down traditions and institutions, but not so easy to actually create them. It's also easy to criticize your heritage without realizing that it is your very heritage that has given you the tools for offering critique. Here's an example. People who want to denigrate the Christian tradition tend to do so with reference to a moral impulse that has long been affirmed by the Christian tradition. Here's another example. People who scapegoat others rely on that very practice of scapegoating for generating their own sense of superiority. So, what is vilified or made into the enemy is, in fact, the reason for your sort of sense of coherence. So, the fifth commandment is a reminder of our hermeneutical situatedness. We always interpret anything from within the world that has been given to us by others. And it's also a commandment dealing with hypocrisy. We should be very careful to criticize what gives us the freedom to criticize. I think this relates quite powerfully to those hypocrites who these days are arguing for limits to be placed on speech. On the whole, they do so within a society that prizes free speech. (laughs) They speak. Uh, because they are able to speak against free speech because they are allowed to speak. So to use some Hegelian logic, they can only call for a limit because they have already gone beyond it. And then, of course, Commandment 5 does deal with the more literal issue of honoring your parents but this doesn't mean that it is saying that your parents are perfect or that tradition is without its flaws in fact sometimes the best way to honor our parents is by living out a better life than they have or than they have had an opportunity uh, to to live in doing so we would therefore be placing our actions in line with the goodness of our being and the goodness of our being is owed, not not entirely, but to a great extent to our parents. Maybe we might honor our parents the way we can honor negative emotions. For some people, this may be necessary, not necessarily by celebrating them or thoughtlessly reacting to them either, but by noticing what they are saying to us and learning the best lessons we can from them. Thus, the commandment is not about passively standing by while power is abused. If anything, it says, look for the best in the structure, or in the family, or in the tradition, and preserve that. Cure any disease that you see by curing the disease, not by eliminating the entire body. To offer a more contentious metaphor, the idea would be to try and ease the pain and suffering of the dying, rather than by condoning euthanasia, which really tries to solve the problem of suffering by eliminating the human being who is suffering. Actually, although that is quite contentious, the metaphor is quite appropriate, considering that the next commandment is, Thou shalt not kill. This is literally true, and it speaks very strongly against the first crime recorded in the Bible, that is, after the uh, taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, namely, the murder of Abel by Cain in a larger sense the commandment regards taking a stand on created being that affirms and celebrates life to love as i've already said is to affirm created being to love is to refuse to accept death as a legitimate path for action this applies as much to looking after the environment as it does to producing content for a podcast or baking a cake or whistling a, t- a tune it's it's about affirming life rather than denigrating it. We should remember, of course, that Jesus takes this commandment more universally and argues that to hate someone is to murder them. That may feel like a stretch, but I don't think it is. At least part of what this suggests is that we should not decide the value of another human being, especially given how remarkably limited our knowledge of them really is. And we should also be very careful not to judge existence itself, since that simply involves abdicating our own responsibility. It should also be said that this commandment is not a call for us to be pacifists. I know this is a very tricky issue. In fact, what I would say, from my perspective it seems this is true, it is on the principle of this law that one might actually take a stand against the actions of another person or nation, especially if that person or nation is set on Murdering others. To not kill also equates to taking a defensive stand against the one who does intend to kill. It's interesting that this commandment is followed by commandment 6, which basically says don't commit adultery. At the most abstract level, this commandment highlights the value of fidelity. So you could look at a few examples of how that plays out in life. If you want to do a job, well, focus on that. If you want to climb a mountain, don't spend all your time lounging around. Be faithful to the task set before you, including, in fact, especially when that task is making sure that your most intimate relationship is properly valued. But, of course, Commandment 6 is also about sex. Keeping in mind the way that we've looked at the last commandment already, it's helpful to look at this commandment from the perspective of mimetic theory. Because desire is mediated, the object of desire or the person desired easily becomes more attractive when someone else desires them. This is something that people tend not to understand about adultery. If you are in a relationship and your partner cheats on you, chances are good. Really good that your partner was desirable precisely because they are in a relationship with you. And what does such infidelity do? Well, it creates conflict on all sides and often tremendous, even murderous, hatred. But something else happens. If your partner ends up leaving you for the person they've ended up cheating on you with, chances are incredibly good that their newfound relationship will end. Really abruptly, why, well, because it was your desire for them that fueled the entire relationship, and now that there is no rival, the object of desire has lost its i e his or her appeal. The results of this are definitely not good. Everyone involved is not just le- left feeling vengeful and hateful, but they are left feeling devalued, and I don't think it's just a feeling; I think they have been. Devalued. Everyone in that sort of situation gets devalued. So, at least part of the point of this commandment is this adultery leads to conflict or worse. In fact, entire wars have been fought over sex, as is symbolized particularly powerfully by the Trojan War. The law against adultery is therefore an extension of the law against murder. To be unfaithful is to deny or denigrate the being and the value of the other, but this can also cause a literal bloodbath. The next commandment is, thou shalt not steal. It takes fidelity from the bedroom, so to speak, into the world of objects. Everything has its place, and removing something from its right place is an argument for interfering in the given order of being you can't expect that things are going to end up well for you if you take steps towards creating chaos in the world. But of course, there is a mimetic edge to this too. In taking what does not belong to us, we set ourselves up as rivals and therefore also as targets. As I see it, the world is in a really bad place on this matter, since often criminals are treated as victims and thus the person who seeks justice is often deemed a tyrant simply because they are trying to put things back into place. Actually, that's something implied by this commandment too. When something is out of place, fix it, give it back, return it. Don't perpetuate disorder. Since we've already discussed the final commandment, the last commandment on the list is the ninth one. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Actually... All of the commandments rely on truth, which means that our very lives need to correspond with and participate in what is ultimately real. And that means that we need to be sure to help our neighbor, who might be anyone around us, to align their own lives with the truth. It doesn't do them any good if we get our own ontological and existential and ethical ducks into a row and then take steps to undermine them at every turn. I've realized that this commandment is not just about what you do or say, but it's also about what you don't say. If you don't want to hurt someone, you might omit certain harsh truths such that the person you're speaking to misses the very point of what you're saying. They might end up thinking that you're very nice, but they also end up not knowing something that they probably ought to know. If you want to avoid conflict, maybe you brush aside the hurt that you've been caused. By being too agreeable, you can end up being outright deceitful. It is better in the long run, although obviously more difficult, to speak the truth and to be as particular in your speech as you can be, especially on difficult matters. In telling the truth, you become the kind of person who can tell the truth when it really counts. In telling lies, the opposite happens. You become the kind of person who will tell lies when the truth is most needed. Deceit might shield us from reality in the short term, and maybe that's what we feel we need, but long term, it's never a good idea to resort to deceit. The fool tells the lie to be believed now. The wise man tells the truth to be believed later. In the end, I think that's a payoff worth waiting for. And with all of that in mind, I think it's time uh, to begin to close off I find it amazing that Exodus is, in some traditions or from some perspectives, the first book of the Bible. It is, in a way, as much about creation as Genesis is. It's about the creation of a nation, and later in the book, the creation of the temple, which is itself a symbol of creation. And the law symbolizes creation, too. It's about noticing that there is a kind of life that you can make as a subject in the midst of others that is orientated rightly towards what is ultimate and as every creative person knows creativity involves decision making about not only what needs to be done and therefore included but also around what needs to be excluded rejected or even destroyed we have to for example inc- exclude we have to for example exclude the various egypts that we've all known and destroy their various idols We have to exclude certain practices and behaviors that others might find perfectly acceptable. But the point of the law is not, as Jesus noted, to weigh us down. It's not supposed to be a millstone, but more like wings. It welcomes awe and wonder, not something dreary and dull. And I know that that seems really counterintuitive. When we think of rules, or at least when I do, it's easy to think of dead ends, but it's maybe better to see the rules a bit like a road map. You can go almost anywhere you like, but the rules show you the best way to get to where you need to go. I know we haven't looked at the temple construction, which for me feels like it would need a whole series on its own. It's a really complex thing that has so much written on it. But what I do want to point out with regard to the temple is the fact that there is a general progression in Exodus that moves from God's encounter with one man, that is Moses, to his meeting everyone. The temple represents the culmination of the story. God meets Moses high up on a mountain, this kind of removed from the muck of the ordinary, removed from the world of flesh and blood. But as the temple is constructed along with all that goes with it, there's this idea that God becomes less an abstraction than a concrete experiential reality. Absolutely part of the life of ordinary folks like you and me and of course this movement from up to down which is not the kind of movement you'd really expect since i think you know most religious postures assume the movement is always is always down to up it continues in the biblical narrative arc until god takes on a different kind of tabernacle a very human body with all the necessary limbs and organs and orifices god who transcends all things becomes as porous to the various turbulences of life as we all are, and it is truly a remarkable thing that this God's name still lives and breathes in the world, because when you look at the long and troublesome history of the Jews, you will find a nation always at the mercy of empires, forever in captivity or exiled or tortured. It's a little nation, with a God who is known by the mere fact that he is on the side of the underdogs. And then, look at all of those so-called glorious empires, those ones that captured Israel so many times. Their gods aren't worshipped anymore, and their empires are gone. It seems to me that the greatest subverter of gods is God. You might read history very differently, but I think at least one of the messages of this is as follows the way down is the way up. If you want to be better than you are, get low. (laughs) Go back to the beginning. If you want to be raised up, step down. And it is this lesson that is most dramatically shown in the fact that Christianity holds up as their highest ideal, a man who bent low enough to take on the punishment of a common criminal. And the reason that Christianity did this is because of a lesson from the Jews, which was that it takes real greatness to show love to the vulgar and the discarded, and in the end, God will be known in the common. I know, of course, that there is so much more that can be said and will be said about the wonderful book of Exodus, but I figured it would be a good idea to leave you with that thought. At some point, hopefully this year, I will take the notes of this series and turn it into a book which all of my Patreon supporters will get for free, but which I will also release online. I will keep you posted on that in good time, uh, well, at least in the time that I can manage, since I am ferociously busy. I do want to say thank you very kindly for, for listening, everyone. I am grateful for you, and I hope that what I have had to say on this book um, has been edifying and that what I continue to say will be edifying. That is my plan. Uh, what I hope to do uh, next is take a few very, very brief episodes just to answer a few theological and political questions that that people have been asking me. Uh, My Patreon supporters get to ask me questions, and um, I thought to actually set aside some actual time to answer some of those questions. And after that, after this kind of brief interlude of, of questions, I'm going to be focusing on something that I'm calling the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. It's a totally new take on the Enneagram, and I'm really excited about it because it has made me rethink the way that I see uh, the psychology embedded in the Enneagram, and I think in in people around me. So there's a lot to learn from, from that, I hope. So uh, until then, until the next time, take care, everyone. Cheers.